0: Hey this is Craig Finn. My new record of Legacy Rentals is about memory, how we remember friends that are gone, places that have changed, major events that are part of our past. These songs are memorials, incantations, affirmations, legends, and prayers. Like all stories they're subject to the imperfection and limitations of memory, the distortion that happens to our own histories when stretched by time and distance. These small adjustments often become part of the stories themselves. That's How I Remember It is a podcast that examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features a discussion between myself and one creator about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations reveal the different ways each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. My guest today is Adam Duritz. Adam is the founder and songwriter in the band Counting Crows, which he's led since 1991 band has had numerous hit records. Their debut, August and Everything After, was one of the biggest records of the 90s and went seven times platinum. Counting Crows remains a vital band and has been nominated for Grammy and Academy Awards. In 2009, they were nice enough to take my band, the Hold steady, on tour with them in Europe and the UK, which was incredibly fun. Last year, Counting Crows released a fantastic EP called Butter Miracle Sweet One. Which I was excited to talk about. A huge thanks to Adam Duritz for joining us here today on That's How I Remember It. The history's rewritten when the memories get meddled with the way that I remember it. I start all of these with the same question, and it is: Do you think you're someone who has a good memory?
1: Yes and no. I think that weird trivial details from a million things stick in my head for my whole life. But stories of my life, parts of my life, I, I find I don't remember at all. The actual living of it sometimes is just gone. Facts, figures sometimes stick around for a long time. I have details in my head because of songs, but they're not really my life. They're they're other versions of it. I'm more good at like transcribing some of my memories into. Feelings and details in songs, but not always necessarily remembering things.
0: Yeah, I was. I mean, that's the follow-up question. How do you think it affects your storytelling, your songwriting?
1: Well, in that way, I think I have memories for the important parts sometimes, or what's important to writing a song. That's the thing. I think my memory works pretty good for writing a song, coming up with those kind of details. But, like, I was just thinking the other day, there's a lot of, like, recovering satellites and the recording of it. I don't remember at all. What's there is sometimes some of the stories I've told in interviews. Maybe those details are there because I've repeated them, but it's almost like reading the book of the movie or the movie. You know what I mean? It's at that point, it's not really, it's not a real memory.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you think being a public figure is is some part of that? You repeat your stories, you do these interviews that tell the story a certain way that maybe isn't, that loses its way or?
1: Well, I think it inflates certain memories and imprints certain memories in ways that otherwise might not be remembered. Things I might have forgotten I've imprinted, but what I'm remembering is the story, not necessarily even the thing. I'll, I'll use some of the same phrases because of that, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I know when I'm doing like an album cycle, I, I tend to tell the same stories and you almost get efficient at it. Yeah. And then, and you, you know, you can say that story, and you, you get better and better at each interview, but it really imprints this one thing and you forget the other things, you know?
1: Yeah, and I'm a big believer in theology too. Like, I mean, I think this isn't supposed to be just autobiography. Anybody could just, like, write it down, keep a diary. We're supposed to mythologize, too, and we should, you know? Like, I mean, not just in the case of Bowie portraying himself as an alien, you know? But also in just, like, it's a hyper version of life that we're recounting, you know? Like, we're remembering the breathtakingness of of a kiss. It might have been just one kiss, you know? But it might have been, like, you know, she's a really cool kisser, you know? As You put it that way once, you know, I, I've got that in in one of my songs you know, just like we're we're taking these details and we're mythologizing them to make them hyper real, hyper cinematic, which is not the same thing as memory. the memory we're choosing to portray to everyone. Well, yeah, I mean,
0: it's one kiss, and then you sing that song a thousand times, right? You know, you go out and you sing it over 20 years to all these different places, but it's still one kiss. In doing the research to this, I've, there's, I found an interview that you did, and you said about specifics in songs. I think that for a lot of the memory stuff, they populate the background of songs oftentimes, for me anyways, you know? And you said songs call up memories, if you want your song to call up memories, you need to put your own memories in there too. The details, the sense of place, the things that give your world gravity. As opposed to the free floating series of ideas, these descriptions and the details give the world gravity. It makes it a place people can live in. Without is it, it's just air. People don't live in air. They live in worlds, in buildings. And I loved that. And I think that I know for me, you know, the car I got into yesterday, if I called an Uber and it was an Altima, I'm going to be writing a song and I need a car. I don't know that many cars. So that's going to pop up in the song you know and that's the part of my life that's more likely to be in there and when i go to write a song and i can write a song about a bank robbery which i've never done but if i put the bank on a corner that i've walked by a million times i feel better about it
1: well i remember reading a lot i don't know whether it's i can't remember if this is in a movable feast or not or hemingway's talking about that it's the details that really matter like you got to populate your stories your novels your songs with the details and by gravity i didn't mean seriousness i meant literally a thing that puts you on earth Mm -hmm. you know and and uh i took that to mean in a way you know like if you want to tell people how you feel describe the room you're in the way you feel will come through in that you know to just say i love you is kind of meaningless because people are always saying it all the time it doesn't communicate any feeling if you say all at once i look across a crowded room to see the way that light attaches to a girl well, now you're talking about affection you have and feeling you have, but you're also putting it in a place where the way you describe light hitting someone shows that it meant something to you that has gravity, you know, that has detail. You talk about what's on the wall or that it's an ultima and it means something because it, it puts someone in a place they can picture it. If you just describe like vague feelings, I'm not sure you communicate anything. And uh, it's like an entire video of a band playing on stage that just goes from hand on the guitar to hand on the guitar to hand on the guitar. You don't even see faces. It's, it's disembodied. And we want people to get lost, to go live in our songs and feel the things we're feeling. And you can't do that if it's too disembodied and all those details matter. It's weird. You know, I had a guy say to me, one of the record company guys in the beginning, you know, like, you got too many details in your songs, too many proper names, too many places you shouldn't write that way. Cause it makes it hard for, everybody to get into it because they don't live in that place and they don't know that person. And I just thought at the time, man, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> That's not how writing works. You've got to invest yourself in it and people will invest themselves. You don't have to purposely make it vague so that everyone can feel the same things you feel. you make it detailed and they'll, they'll feel it. They don't care whether it's in Boston and they never been to Boston. You know, it doesn't matter.
0: It's a victory. If you can use a specific detail and, and still, you know, a street corner in Boston or Minneapolis or wherever, and people haven't been there, but they still feel what you feel, then you're doing your job right, I think.
1: Yeah, because it's not just supposed to be about a series of vague feelings. It's it's literature. I hate when people tell me we're, I'm a, we're poets, you know, because I write songs, you know, and it's a different thing. I'm really proud of that. But yeah, but it's literature. You know, I, I mean, I read A Princess of Mars when I was a kid. You know, Edgar Rice Burroughs knew what he's doing. I didn't have to go to Mars. You know, anyway, what he was talking about is not there. You know, like, you know, it, it, it's uh, we just need to create worlds just like people can watch movies. Your your brain works even better than a lot of movies because the special effects are better.
0: I listened to The Clash as a kid long, long before I went to London and send guns in Knightsbridge Hall or dial 999. It made my mind go crazy. And I didn't even know what it meant, but it it, it sounded urgent right
1: (laughs) yeah he made it sound like it was really really fucking important you know and and it it, it was and i felt that
0: yeah yeah i mean and you know when you're saying about these proper names i've heard that too i feel like that's the one thing that makes me angrier than anyone people say don't put a street corner i get angry i almost feel like that advice is how to get your song on country radio or something like it, it doesn't make any sense to me as far as what i would want to listen to
1: No, me neither. It just, you know, I remember, you know, all those characters. I wonder who Spanish Johnny was. Spanish Johnny drove her out to the underworld tonight. I was like, where is this shit? You know, where's all those, all those characters that floated by on the Wild, the Innocent, the East Street Shuffle that populated this fucking beach town in New Jersey of all places where I didn't, never even thought about being. But like, it was clearly like a, a, a magical place for him, a magical dying wonderland. You know what I mean? And like, is there anything? of, is there anything cooler than that? Those places when you can feel, because the things are magic when we're young, and then we get older and we watch them die out because everything does over time. You know, like you get. I remember the first time we played Asbury Park, it was Super Bowl Sunday of nineteen ninety four. So it's January, you know, and so you know it's not the the height of beach town life. And anyways, that place was dying in seventy four. You know when he wrote "Wild the Innocent." You know, so like or 73, whatever that is. It was actually better in winter. Like there's nothing like a deserted boardwalk in winter. When we filmed the uh, the video for Big Yellow Taxi, we did it at Coney Island on the boardwalk in the wintertime. And to see the rides not moving, all the, God, that was just, it was so, there was something so emotive about it, about uh, this place when it's not happening, you know, that was just like, wow, this is, it was incredible. And I remember the same thing about Asbury Park, On, you know, that January night and how like it all seemed so deserted and empty. And then all the people showed up at Stone Pony, you know, you know, a million people packing this little club and it was just it was it was fucking magic. There was my magic there that time, you know.
0: You just reminded me of a memory of, we played the Stone Pony and there was an English photographer for one of the British magazines and they wanted to take a photo on the beach. We'd gotten a lot of Springsteen comparisons and it was so cold. It was like November, but it was really cold. And they brought us down to the beach and it was shivering cold and too windy almost to do it, but we got it done. But I remember feeling like, well, this is the most Springsteen feeling when when the same thing when 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 it's not warm and there's no one around and we're the only ones and then we can barely keep it together in the cold so cool getting bigger picture early memories of music do you have like your first memories of music moving you
1: yeah there's a couple things i remember really specifically my parents had a lot of records that they didn't seem to listen to at all but they were there and well two things one my parents took me to my first concert when i was like 6 or 7 we were living in texas and they took me we saw the jackson 5 cool you know, and like, I, I don't really remember the concert, but I remember just the image of it. These five kids, you know, when I was a kid. And then my other one, right after that same time, same year, I have this very vivid picture of standing in front of a mirror with a tennis racket while I have the, while well, Can't Buy Me Love plays in the background. I have the record and I'm playing. I think it's on the Beatles again, maybe that, that compilation of singles. Mm-hmm. And it's just not And I'm playing. I don't realize that Paul A plays bass and is left handed, but I'm like, singing Can't Buy Me Love and performing in the mirror by myself in my room. You know, and I, I remember that really, really clearly. Like, there's something really live about this. You know, I dug the jazz of it, just like with the tennis racket.
0: Did you have the feeling when you were that young that music was, like, more special to you than the other kids you knew? Or was it was it all the same?
1: Well, I didn't know the other kids all that well. Um, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. We moved from Baltimore when I was three boston when i was like five to el paso and we left there when i was seven to denver and after i was about to turn nine to houston and then we were out to california by 10 what i did know was that music was really important to me it was everything i listened to it nonstop. i don't know that i noticed it was more important to me than other kids but i don't remember really knowing a lot of other kids
0: yeah yeah, I get that. I get that. I had the sense of that, like, I knew no one was listening to as much music as I was. It, was, it wasn't was a secret, but I was like, I don't think anyone else is doing this much music, you know? And, and, you know, thinking about records, and this is something I've been asking everyone, is there music that sounds better at certain seasons to you? Like, do you have fall records, spring records, etc.?
1: No, I don't know that I've really ever thought about that. I mean, there's Christmas stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I do love the fact I really get off on that every holiday season. There's, there's all these great people who make Christmas albums, and they're really, really fucking good. You know, that Ray Charles one is off the hook, the Ella stuff. You know, the fact that there are all these that you don't just have to listen to the Jingle Bells. Like, there are a shitload of really, really good Christmas albums. And I kind of get off on playing that stuff on, the, you know, that time of year.
0: Have you thought about doing one?
1: I feel weird about it being Jewish, but I'm not really particularly religious. I'm not I'm not at all, even a slightly bit religious at all, is really the truth of it. Right. My favorite holiday is certainly Christmas. But I don't know. I, I Maybe, I, I love the idea of singing songs like that. But, I, I you know, how are you ever going to get near that Phil Spector one?
0: My, my favorite contemporary one is Lowe. Uh, the band Lowe has a beautiful Christmas record. Um, and they have a song called Just Like Christmas that, you know, every holiday season I come home at some point after three glasses of wine and put it on and almost cry. Uh, it's such a beautiful song. So when as Christmas rolls around, remember that one. I, I think you'll love it.
1: I don't even know about that. So I, But it's funny. I was just thinking about them yesterday because I was in Minneapolis for a gig a couple of days ago, and I was just thinking about the – do you remember that band, That Dog?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, there were label-made bars when we were on DGC, you know? Anna Warrinker,
0: yeah. Oh, do you know her? I've met her. Um, I don't know if she'd even remember, but I love, I, I think you're t- going to talk about the song Minneapolis, right?
1: Yeah. And the very last last line of the last verse, I think, is like, see me when low plays, you know? I think
0: that that song, and you know, well, maybe I'll get her on uh, at some point and ask her about, I always heard that that song was about Lowe's roadie. Oh, really? hmm And I forget his name, but that that they met and that was, she meets him at the Jabberjaw in LA. I was at the Jabberjaw, cutest boy I ever saw. That's what I always heard about that song, Great, a beautiful song.
1: That's really cool. I, I just thought that's, I, I was just thinking about that the other day. I listened to it over and over and I meant to. I procrastinated and didn't do it. I wanted to send it to our sound guy so that we could walk on stage, drop the lights, and go out to Minneapolis. And I forgot to send it to him.
0: It would get a it would get a reaction for next time. <laughs> Think about
1: that's it. A great song. That record. I mean, I really loved them from the beginning. They, that I loved all their records, and we were and we were total contemporaries because we were signed right at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were so great. That song had that other song, Long Island, too. Is on that. It's just a great record. Yeah, that's a really. There's something very summery. I think it's I guess maybe it's called Escape from the Sun. Maybe that's why I think of it that way. That record really reminds me of touring a lot. But it also when I think about it, it would be a great winter thing about how those things took place in the summer but they're not it's not summer anymore.
0: Well, I mean these days you have to like like you know, I think I uh, I put out a record in May and I was a little, you know, the 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 lead time you need with vinyl and, you know, uh, shortages and all this. It's like you can make a fall record and it's going to come out in summer. <laughs>
1: you know following fall yeah yeah that's
0: right now it's it's yeah so it's it's a game of timing and it's like well is this is really a record that people are going to listen to in the summer but then getting it out it seems like such a thrill uh with all the delays and all that so you just go for it is there um you know in art music books uh all that anything movies whatever are there eras that you're drawn to like um for me i i keep saying in this podcast but like the nixon era I was born in 71, so when I watch like a movie that's set in 1974, it kind of confirms these memories that I think I might have of what men dressed like, et cetera. Do you have eras that you like?
1: No, but I love a period piece. You do? I really love a fresh take on a period. I was thinking about this the other day because I was watching Devil in the Blue Dress, mm-hmm. Denzel Washington film. When Walter Mosley wrote those books, he was really writing about a very unique experience that you don't see portrayed very often, which is like the Post-war black experience in in Los Angeles, like you know, and it's a lot of people came up from very very poor backgrounds, got jobs in the aircraft factories and in the in the war factories from the south on the coast, whether it was in Oakland or Los Angeles. And there's a lot of people like the character Easy Rollins who owns his own home, mm-hmm. you know, which is very very probably in his family very different time, you know, and like that period of like post-war LA. It's just not a, you know, we've seen movies about the the gangster stuff in L.A. or, you know, I guess Chinatown in the 20s with the, you know, the 20s or 30s, whenever that is. Uh, but 1947 or whatever that is, 46, like just post-war, everyone's home. It's just a, a chunk, a slice of life I, I had never read about or seen before newly sort of semi-affluent black people coming up from the south into the west with less discrimination but still discrimination Mm -hmm. the workforce like a lot of women were during the war and then suddenly uh everyone's back after the war and they're expected to give things up like women were as well like it's a very unique portrayal just like a league of our own was portraying women at home during the war as opposed to guys off fighting the war yeah Um, you know, what that was all was like. I love period pieces that really do it well. There's that one, oh, it's Soderbergh's second or third movie, takes place during the Depression in St. Louis. Can't remember call right now. It's just like on a low budget, a brilliant period piece. Or Mate One, that John Sayles movie about, uh, you know, coal workers, coal miners. Yeah. Or like Super Eight, early 80s, uh, an homage to the, all the Spielberg and that generation of young filmmakers, kids who grew up wanting to make movies. And those kids, you know, and that's later. Uh, Stranger Things is portraying that as well. But I, I just, the richness of a really good period piece like Super 8 or any of the other ones I mentioned, maybe because like the details in the songs, you really sink into it, you know? It's got a lot of texture to it. And I find that very uh, rewarding as a viewer, I guess.
0: I was thinking what Stranger Things, when you're talking about that, like that seems like a show that because they get the 80s stuff right and people look right and the mall looks right, you can kind of go there when there's an upside down world or a, a monster or something yeah. because like as we were saying that the, the rest of the details line up so you can kind of go there with them
1: well because I think once you've created the the period piece itself with enough loving detail we're already taking off from where we are into this and we can accept something new after that like an alien in uh super eight you know it doesn't it's not a big jump it works or or in by the same token we all show this the original version of it of course is it's not a period piece but uh et you know it's like once you get us to that place we're willing to accept an alien walking by
0: Right. I mean, I think that, you know, I've I've noticed that I know kids that are teenagers now, my friends' kids. And I was thinking like, the one thing I feel might be different about when I grew up was that there seemed to be an omerta between the kids. like, And you see it in those movies, Goonies, E.T. You know, something really weird happens. They find an alien and everyone's like, don't tell the parents. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the last thing we could do, no one can go to the parents. And I, I sort of that was my own memory of the eighties. Like it was us versus them. And I was a good kid, but still there were things I was not going to discuss with parents.
1: Yeah. No, I think that, I mean, I don't have kids now, but it does seem to me like, you know, there was enough dangers that became part of like the, the common experience that I don't know. The kids are off on their own to the same extent we were, you know, that that's like, when people ask me about places we lived in, you ask me where I'm from, and I'll say, well, I grew up in the Bay Area and Texas. And I wasn't in Texas for that long, but that's the place, like, when you're a kid at first, everything you do is with your family or at school, you know, or but it's just with your family. At a certain point, you go, you go off and do some stuff on your own. And I mean young. It's probably around first grade. You go play with other kids or you go ride your bike, but you're not just in the house or just going to activities with your parents. You actually have... Your own experiences as a kid, which started for me around, I guess, six. Where I remember it is six in El Paso, and riding my bike around on the vacant lots and seeing spiders and snakes and stuff. And um, it's just the first time I remember being out of the house, really, in that way, on my own. And I think that imprinted on me in a way. So when you tell me, ask me where I'm from, I, I think of Texas, even though you know I was out of Texas before I was ten, but. Of all the places we lived when I was younger, the only one that really sticks with me is Texas until I get to Oakland and Berkeley, because I think that's the place where I went off on my own for the first time. And I think that's a big imprinting experience for a kid. And it's the same reason like we remember like, doing stuff with just our friends, but not our parents when we were kids, You know, like you're talking about, that maybe separates how kids are today. If that's true, I don't know.
0: Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Yeah, I'm not totally sure either. But when I see those classic movies, I always feel like that's one thing they got right. You know, like like yeah. that's my memory of it. And uh, I have I moved around a little bit, not as much as you, but I always sort of feel like the answer to that question is like, where'd you go through puberty? You know, because that's sort of where things broke down and you put yourself back together again. And maybe that's where I think like that's where you're from. Maybe if if it's if there's any question, um, for a lot of people,
1: I think that's true. Which is the Bay Area for me, you know, Oakland and Berkeley. Where all that happened, but for some reason, Texas really sticks in me. And like, if, if I think about it, I start drawing. And if I'm drunk or it's late at night or I'm around anywhere from the south, it happens there too, you know. And a lot of times when I'm singing, it comes out. And I think that's just because there was this experience there because none of the Boston or the Baltimore accents come out at all, you know, um, but the Texas one does.
0: Texas is—I mean, Texas is a big place—and I could see it also just, you know, it, it's its your own unique thing. So I could see that imprinting. I wanted to talk about about a year ago. You put out the Butter Miracle Sweet one, which I love, and I was curious: Did the EP format, you know, just four songs, did it allow for less pressure, or make anything easier? I mean, you hadn't you hadn't released music for a little bit before that. And also, maybe just the sweet nature of the the structure of the piece, as the songs kind of run together,
1: did that help? Well, I really loved our record before that, Somewhere Under Wonderland, but, and, and, and it was one of the first times I had a completely positive experience with the record company. Uh, Capital was just great uh, and they really did a lot of work on it and they couldn't have tried harder to find ways to promote it, including being, being excited about the idea of a first single that was like 10 minutes long and making a film of it. You know, they really wanted to do that. But it also, it just felt like it just went out and then disappeared. Everything was changing and I felt like we didn't know how to put out records. And I felt like even with the best will in the world and a rep company that was trying really hard, they weren't trying anything that actually worked. And like, it kind of made me want to wait a little while. I just wasn't inspired about writing because I didn't want to throw something down a hole again. And so I sort of didn't for a while. And here's where I get into telling a story I've told before, but I've been spending a lot of time in recent years on my friend's farm. He has a farm in the West of England. And I was there, you know, with my girlfriend, sometimes with my friends, sometimes in his family but a lot of time by myself, just me and a couple dogs. And I got the urge to play piano, which I hadn't had in a long time. And I rented a keyboard and I just started playing. And like the day after I started playing, I wrote the tall grass, the first song on that EP. And the next day, I mean, I know how I am. Like if I start writing, I want to record it and I want to put it out. And I know that I'm that way. And I really was kind of avoiding that for a while, but I wrote the tall grass and the next day I came back and I was playing it. I wasn't sure if it was quite done. I got to the end of the song. I started playing the outro and I shifted some chords around and I liked that too. And then I just sang Bobby was a kid from around the town. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Uh, Maybe this is a longer song like Palisades Park, which has several movements to it. So I started working on it. And after a little while, I realized, oh, no, this isn't the longer song. This is a different song. This is turned out to be Elevator Boots. And I thought, but man, I really dug the way it flowed like it was part of the tall grass. And I just got really excited. Well, what if I wrote a whole series of songs like that? Like uh, the second side of Abbey Road or that one side of the wild, the innocent or what's going on? You know, like what if I write a suite? And that got me real, the challenge of that and the compositional idea, the compositional challenge, that got me really excited about like, okay, now I've got something completely unique I'm doing here. This I want to write, record and put out. And I don't care if it works or it doesn't work. This is a really, now I want to do this. Once I get that, I can't stop.
0: Did you bring it back to the band or did you start recording right there?
1: No, I sent them, well, I was recording them on my iPhone and I sent them to the band one by one as I wrote them. And I would like play it into the next song and a little bit from the one before it so they could see what I was talking about. And then it took us a little while to get in the studio and we got in the studio. The plan I had was just to take five of us in the studio, just one of our guitar players, bass, drums, keyboards, and me and then do just two quick weeks and then take like a break for a week and then bring the other two guitar players in and finish it up uh and right as we were like eight days in maybe three or four days from the end is when the pandemic stuff started like <laughs> we're sitting there while someone else is working looking at cnn and trump's in the CBC talking about how he doesn't want to let people off boats and i was like Oh, this is a problem. We're not going to be able to finish this, are we? <laughs> so we finished what we had there in those two weeks. and then, But we couldn't bring the other guitar players in because the whole country got shut down right then. So they ended up doing their stuff at home. Like Brian Deck and Neil, our engineer, drove in from Chicago so they wouldn't have to fly. And we found a studio like a couple blocks from my house. And everybody stayed here. Me, Emmer. Well, Emmer lives a few blocks away, so he stayed at his place. Brian and Neil stayed here with me. I cooked for everybody, so no one needed to go out to eat. Uh, And uh, we just put the other guitars in and mixed the record a couple blocks away. The really weird thing about it was, as much as I had the idea in my head of what this record was, I didn't really know it worked. Like, we played this, when we recorded it, we didn't record it in one 20-minute segment, we'd record each song and we would end by going into the next song and then stopping after a few bars into the next song, you know. You know, when you make a record though, you can tell one by one as each song comes down, if it's good, yeah, And you can, you'll decide on the order later. There's nothing that really matters about, you'll figure out the, the, you know, the pacing and how, you know, the sequencing. But with this one, even as we were recording it and the songs are coming out great and the recording, I don't know if the concept works. Like, I don't really know if they're going to tie together or if it's going to sound shitty and you're going to hear it in a bad way. I mean, not that you'd hear a pop, but that you'd hear the difference, that the tone of it doesn't actually work. Cause just because it worked on piano when I'm segueing from one to the other doesn't mean it works when it's a band, you know. And it wasn't until we finished putting those guitar parts in and mixed all four songs, we finished Bobby and the Rackings, and then we sat around that afternoon and we clipped them together. And it wasn't until we listened down that I realized, you know, oh, <laughs> it worked okay. It, it was weird to hold an idea in your head, like a dream that you held in your head for. A year or so, however long it was, between the concept and writing them and then recording them. It was weird to hold it that I mean, I don't know that I've ever felt such a sense of like a mixture of like absolute elation and relief when we listened down. And we had to make a little adjustments with volume stuff, but basically, oh my God, it works. You know, and and especially when the the crazy soul at the end of like the sort of weird like Melatronic dance song that is Angel of 14th Street, and then the 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 guitar solo at the end coming into that fucking gun, gun, gun for the top of bobby when that moment went by and that's when i knew all four songs worked together and not only that but that that moment was a complete fucking thrill yeah everything i wanted it to be i've never had that experience i don't think i've ever felt that good about something because nothing ever made me wait like that one did you know it's a very unique experience. I
0: love it. And it, it's got, you know, you're talking about the spring scene thing of the magic rat and, you know, all these characters. It has that great cinematic characters. These characters pop up in a, and and it nods more than I think anything I've heard you do to Bowie and Matha Hoople and some stuff that I really love. And there's almost this sense of this. Uh, which those guys do too. Uh, a, a Sort of a future greaser is what I call it. You know, like like it's something at once futuristic and also, you know, uh, traditional maybe like, you know, like a robot in a leather jacket or something, you know, there there's something that feels, I, I, have you ever seen the Grateful Dead movie? I don't know if you're a Grateful Dead guy, I know you're a Bay Area person, but uh, did you ever see the Grateful Dead movie? There's a cartoon at the beginning. Do you know what movie? It's back? it's called the Grateful Dead movie, and they have it opens with this animated. I think it's like about a twelve minute animation. It's a very effective to me version of that feeling, that sort of future. It, it's a pinball machine, but it's and it's kind of got this futuristic music, but it's sort of also a fifties thing, and I love it. And it it there's something that kind of flashed when I listened to uh, the EP that that made me think of it, and it it speaks to me in that Bowie and um. Mott the Hoople kind of thing too.
1: Well, that Bowie and Mott were certainly a big part of like what I was aiming for, especially with elevator boots. Yeah, elevator boots. I really wanted to have that sort of like acoustic guitar, but then really crunchy Mick Ronson interruption of it. You know, yeah. When the choruses come in, I really wanted that you to feel Mick Ronson. You know, and I I think there was parts of later Bowie and also when I was going. When I was there, I went into town one day with one of the guys that works on the farm to buy some groceries. And coming back, we heard this Bombay Bicycle Club song played on the BBC. There was this melody in it. It was kind of like this kind of keyboard melody over the top of it. And it just really made me think of this kind of modern British kind of dance music, but kind of like Bowie-esque thing too. And that made me write Angel of 14th Street, which sounds nothing like that. And I went back like a while ago when we were making the record, I was... I told someone the story of like what inspired that song and I went back and found that Bombay Bicycle Re- Club record that had just come out when I was uh writing those songs. I can't figure out what song it is. Mm-hmm. I can't find anything on there that sounds like this memory I have. I was hearing this kind of melody over the top of something that however this kind of bouncy little keyboard melody and that gave me kind of the groove idea for but then I when I, I was thinking oh I kind of want to go back and find it now cuz I bet it's really cool how much you know, I would love to see how much it resembles the angel 14th or not. And I can't even figure out what song it is. There's nothing on there that is like what I remember hearing on the radio that day. And I have no idea what it was.
0: Amazing. That's, I mean, that's a ghost. That's, that's maybe just a yeah. ghost. That's so cool. Well, one of the things I'm really interested in is like, when we make stuff, it's kind of like, ooh, you know, when you draw your, when you're a kid and you like mark your height against the closet door. And I always feel like making stuff, making a, an album, a book, whatever it sort of says, here's where I am emotionally at this moment, you know? And there's, there's even some things like you mentioned, Reddit and Tinder in the, uh, in the Bobby and the Rat Kings. It's kind of like, that's a modern, you know, those are things that we think about right now, but there's this, you say sometimes memories are all we got. come on, boy, let's link some at the show. And it feels like this song to me is one of the greatest songs about not just a band, but the audience.
1: Well, yeah, I think, you know, like for you and me, Music's been a huge part of our lives as like obsessive music geeks, but also people who actually make it. You know, and I, I felt like, you know, Elevator Boots looks at it from the perspective of a guy in a band who's been spending a lifetime doing it and all the ups and downs of that. But yeah, Bobby and the Rackings is really about how important music is for someone who loves this band, this fictional band. But he just fucking loves them. And all of his memories, the, the, the highlights, those hyper realistic moments of his life when he was out there with the kids on his own are at these shows, you know, and when they come to play to town, how big a deal it is, you know, like the magic of those nights, you like, I mean, yeah, I did. I saw a lot of dead shows when I was a kid. So I have some of those nights, you know, uh, but yeah, I think Bobby and the Rackings, I was really in love with that song because it's one of the few I've ever written, if any, from the perspective of a fan, which is what I still am. And like the magic, it's a weird thing because it takes place in modern days, but a lot of the memories that are in it are from when I was a kid loving music that way that as important as bands were. And it also takes into like part of the plot is taken from, you know, when they had the big earthquake in 89 and the bridge fell down and like, it was a weird time. We, we had, they fixed it in a month, but that month, uh, the public transportation uh, Bart in the Bay area ran 24 hours a day, which it never did. It always shut off at 11 or 12. And uh, it's, it ran like the New York city subways do. And it meant that you didn't have to drive anywhere. Um, you could just go out all night if you wanted to. And you could get home across the bridge, you know, without, like, worrying about it, being drunk in a car or something. And and Halloween fell over that month. And so, like, that particular Halloween that year was crazy in San Francisco. Just Everybody went out. And, like, I remember coming back late, late at night. And there were just bodies sprawled out in the city center station. Like, just people just... In all, and this is the weird part about the memories for me, because I kept seeing this one group of people on Bart on the way over. That in the early evening, there was this quartet dressed as Dorothy and the Wood, the Tin Tin Man, and the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion, like really good costumes too. And then I, I saw them at a couple different places that night around San Francisco, and and more specifically, I feel like it was in the Mission late that night. They're right on like 16th uh, above. There was a bar called the Albion that was like 16th and mi- above Mission, above uh, Harrison. It was like on the corner, this alley where Albion met 16th Street. I was coming and it was right on this little alley, and I had a girlfriend who lived above the place. But I came out of the bar at some point that night and uh, and I saw Dorothy fucking scarecrow. <laughs> and man, I, so I think she's, I don't think she, know which one <laughs> it was. I, uh, Against the wall, and I realized, oh, Dorothy's a guy, you know. Yeah, I get it. You know, it was no big deal with San Francisco; we're used to it. But it was just such a good costume that I hadn't realized it earlier. <laughs> uh, and I saw them again, sprawled out like three in the morning in City Center, like waiting for the trains because the trains were running, but they weren't running very often. And so there was just like piles of people in costumes that are now not as good as they were when we left. And, I, and so I remember seeing them again, that, and I—that's all incorporated into that breakdown in the bridge, you know, kind of like wild trying to describe the wildness of that night and how we all got really crazy.
0: Um, one of the most moving things that happened to me, and it's so small, many years ago, we were playing the Metro in Chicago and I woke up and I got off the bus and I was about, you know, a block away and there was a bar, sports bar, and it had one of those signs out front and it said, welcome, hold steady fans. And I you know, in one way, I look at it, it's like that's just capitalism. They want they want the people going to the show to drink there, but I just was moved suddenly that there were these people that were going to kind of take over that block later tonight, and they were going to be our people, and it like literally brought me to tears on the on the corner in Chicago, and I think that I think that that some of this that's a little bit what Bobby and the Rat Kings makes me
1: feel um, about the idea. yeah, I mean it's like. It's a big deal to love a band. And it's also to be a big, it's a big deal to be in a band and feel it, especially early on, you know, when you feel it that like they're coming for us, you know, like those, there's iconic moments like that, what you're talking about, or, you know, the first time you go overseas and someone shows up to see you play, you know, we did that in Europe together, you know, like wasn't either of our first times, I don't think, but like, there's something magical about like, it's like the reverse Beatles on Ed Sullivan. When you play London, you know, and people come out all the way across an ocean to see, I, I'm sorry, I got to tell you this other story just trying me of it. Um, one of my friends was, a, I think it was Steve Bowman, who was our original drummer. There was a band in the Bay Area called The Looters. You know, it was a big thing in the 80s, uh, the late 80s. Uh, the, the world beat was like what San Francisco was all about. Freaky executives with this great funk band, uh, like pre, you know, kind of Prince-influenced funk band. And a uh, camera, a couple of the others, uh, and one of them was The Looters, and they were very political you know kind of funk soul rock and roll very political they, they'd go to nicaragua and play in support of the sandinistas you know they were very much in that sort of political band and they had this gig once there and later in their incarnation steve played drums for them before he was in counting crows and he told us a story about how they uh they had this gig somewhere in central california like stockton or somewhere i don't know central california in the, in the valley um and, and they went, they got there and they all went to have dinner after sound check, across this parking lot to some diner that was there, you know. They come out of the diner for dinner and they're all stopped. They're flabbergasted. There's just a fucking line of people around the block. And it's just all the way leading up to the club. They can't believe it. They've never been that big a band. And it's just like, you know, a thousand people, so many fucking people, way more than can fit in the club. And they can't figure out what it is. They're just like, wow, this is amazing. We've made it like this is the greatest thing ever. And they walk back to the club through the parking lot and around the thing and they get to the side door. They want to just go out front, to see where the line reaches into the in the front lobby and they go around the corner to look at it. And they look at the people and they're really happy. And they look up at the marquee and it says tonight only the Hooters. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm fucked up, put miss. the wrong name up, and uh oh, just heartbreaking.
0: The the other one for me <laughs> that's amazing. The other one for me was Shepherd's Bush Empire in London. I was walking to the show and I about a block away, I found a guy. There was a guy with a blanket set up and bootleg hold steady merch, and I've never felt as important like I am like I'm supposed to be mad but this is just such a moment bootleg merch
1: I always loved that place too because it had its own subway stop right there and so a few times when we played there I, I was doing my own thing during the day and instead of like going on the bus I took the subway and got off at Shepherds Bush and walked to the Empire and there was something really cool about that you know just like getting out of the subway and going to my own gig in London but I know exactly what you're talking about too because there was this place in Dublin in Temple Bar, that even when we weren't a very big band, like, whatever we were playing in Dublin, the morning after, they'd have the cassette bootleg already there of the show we'd play. I'd walk down there before we'd leave town, and they'd have this cassette, Counting Crows, you know, the night before at the Olympia or the Point Depot or whatever it was, you know, they had the fucking bootleg the next morning and i was always like man that is that is totally cool it's
0: probably someone's job to be angry about that but as the artist you're just like man people care that's amazing on that topic i saw the show like maybe nine months ago at hammerstein it's great i was thinking when i was watching you know i mean we've been a band 20 years you guys have been a band more like 30 years do you think like having i mean i think the answer is yes but but it seems to me having a timeless sound pays a lot of dividends in the long run. Were you aware of that going in or is that just, I don't want to say luck, but, but you know, you've created a, a music that, that doesn't, isn't, isn't necessarily, you know, it, it sounds classic rather than of the year it was
1: released. Well, I think it's a little bit about making your own luck on that because I think that, well, I mean, when we first started out, we sounded a little, when we, before we were signed, sounded a little like late model Roxy Music, kind of Avalon era Roxy Music. It was music we all loved. David played very effective guitars back then, but I knew it wasn't what I wanted us to sound like. It was the end of Roxy Music's life, a band I loved, but like it, it felt very much of a moment. And I didn't know what I wanted us to sound like, but I wanted us to get rid of everything that made us sound like something else at that moment. We steve got rid of most of the drums in his kit we made matt stop playing the steinberger fretlesses he had and he just we got a like a hofner hollow body bass and a vox teardrop you know dave was not allowed to use any uh effects on his guitars we're gonna add them all in later if we did that charlie was perfectly happy about it because all we really asked him to do was play piano and uh hammond at the point at that mm-hmm. time it wasn't really that i wanted us to sound like a rootsy band it was just i want us to get rid of everything that wasn't just us playing and learn to be a band which made that first record a nightmare to do because i put everyone through hell <laughs> now ever since then uh, we've really not stuck to that uh, i wanted to try you know as soon as possible like let's get mellotron let's get more electric guitars let's like let's just fuck around you know i think part of what makes it timeless is that we've never wanted to go back and make after august and everything after You know, we've just never been interested in doing what we did last time again. Necessarily, we've always been like, let's just do whatever we're interested in, whatever that is. You know, like, you know, we we just didn't have a lead guitar player when we made August, so we couldn't do the loud stuff I wanted to do. And Steve was the wrong kind of drummer for us. But when Ben joined the band, we could play punk stuff. We could play loud. We could play Angels of Silences. You know, Um, and then we discovered like how much fun mellotrons were. Right around that time too. You know, and you know. By the time we made this Desert Life, we'd been listening to Sparkle Horse and we were really into like what early stuff that Radiohead was doing. And we wanted to try experimenting with sound and stuff and doing all kinds of different shit, you know. And so we got, uh, you know, Dennis Herring and David Lowry, who had done the Sparkle Horse record and some of the Cracker stuff together. And they were very, very different from Gil Norton, who, you know, we we were making Recovery the Satellites. We want to find the guy who did the Pixies yeah. records because that was like the right vibe, you know. And it's very, very, very different from from T Bone, you know, on uh, on August. You know, we always were like looking for that, whatever we were interested in right then, and chasing it. And it, we never really cared very much about whether it sounded anything like August, which is the one everyone wants, seems to wants to go back to and asks us all the time. Do you feel like this record is a return to August and everything after? <laughs> I've gotten on every single record, and I'm like. Just because it's not like the one before it. No, it's very different from Hugs and Everything else.
0: Well, I mean, the Butter Miracle is certainly way different. But it's a a tremendous body of work. And um, I think we wrap it up here. I had such a good time talking. Uh, So good to see you. I hope our paths cross in real life sometime. And uh, uh, thank you so much for being a part of this. All right, there you go. Such a great talk. Such an interesting guy. Still making great music. One of the memories I have of touring with the Counting Crows in 2009 is how good every part of their whole crew was, from the band, to the techs, to the caterers. They built a staff of wonderful people that stuck with them over the years, and it made a huge difference to us as the support band. We all look back fondly on that tour, and I think we learned some things too. So there's some memory. Uh, Speaking of touring, I'm going on tour with my band, the Uptown Controllers, and it's going to be great. We hit Europe and the UK in September, Get your tickets now. The UK shows especially are all at low tickets right now. All dates are at craigfinn.net. After Europe and UK, we'll be touring the States in October and November. Get tickets and come hang out. It's a great band. Uh, Steve Selvage from The Hold Steady is actually going to be joining in guitar for a lot of the shows. You should come out and hang. Uh, let me know what you think of the podcast. And uh, while you buy me a drink or I buy you a drink, let's see what happens. Meanwhile, a huge thanks again to Adam Dirtz for joining today and you for listening to That's How I Remember It. That's a wrap on season one. We're going to take a little break while I'm on tour, but I'll use this space to give you some tour updates, etc. So stay tuned, listen, and subscribe, and we will return before too long with season two of That's How I Remember It.